Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan features two radio professionals with over a hundred years of broadcasting experience between them. Dave Hogan and Randy Houston are both native Western North Carolinians whose rich voices have been heard in every glade, cove, and holler of Western North Carolina and East Tennessee, primarily on AM radio. And between the two of them, they've worked in just about every radio format. As you can imagine, these guys have tons of stories about the day-to-day of live radio and the interactions they've had with listeners and entertainers while they were immersed in, at the time, one of the most influential and informative mediums available. Those experiences will be featured in this podcast series. Check the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts with Randy and Dave on Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan. Welcome back, friends, to Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan. I'm the Houston part of it. And I'm Dave Hogan. It's good to have you with us back here on our Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan program. It's a, a show where we talk about our radio experiences and and talk about actually living in and being in the radio business like Dave and I have done for Oh boy, long time. Over half a century together, uh, over a century. Yeah. I'm in my 52nd year and you retired after year 57. Is that right? That's right. 57 years of being on the radio every day and reporting, uh, the, the, uh, the, the occurrences of the day and, uh, the trends of the day. And in our previous podcast show, we talked about some of the big shifts in music and, and the shifts in radio. And, and I, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit. We've talked about this off mic some about how these shifts in radio and in music and trends were often very indicative of changes in the culture of the day. I've always thought that for the most part, there are exceptions, as you know, Randy, to everything. But for the most part, music is a reflection of culture. A lot of people complain about, say, country music nowadays. And oftentimes through the years, there have been, uh, we talked about the 70s, for instance, as a, as a decade of change in uh, music. And what happens is the culture changes. You don't have the people growing up today who live the same life as Loretta Lynn. Very true. Or Johnny Cash or Hank Williams, or Lefty Frizzell, or Bill Monroe. They live in a different culture. They live in a different time. Margo and I, up in eastern Kentucky one time, drove to Butcher Hollow and drove right up to where Loretta Lynn was raised in an old run-down house at the head of the holler. You've heard Loretta talk about Butcher Hollow and sing about Butcher Hollow. There are very few people who live in those circumstances now. There are a few, but even the people who are the poorest in our society now have a lot of advantages that somebody like Loretta Lynn did not have. You know, they got cell phones. I I told you one day when we were having lunch that with all the streaming services that are now available in addition to your your tv your cable tv you get a chance to watch some of the older programs right and i was always a fan of columbo 
And one of the streaming services offers all the Columbo shows from back in the 1970s. And you can just look for a few minutes at one of those shows with the detective Columbo. And you can see the tremendous change from just the 1970s to today. If Columbo needed to make a phone call, he had to find a phone booth somewhere. <laughs> How long has it been since you've been inside a phone booth? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? And you had to have a telephone directory to look up somebody's number. And if you were at a desk, you had a had a phone that had a had a cord to it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And you had a typewriter on your desk, not a computer. So you only have to see a few frames to see that the culture has changed from then till today, where most people have a cell phone carrying around a, a telephone in their pocket. They got a computer or a tablet. A tablet is a computer, of course, and a phone is a computer. All so, at your fingertips. So you don't have the same people writing songs today like you did when Bill Monroe or the father of country music, uh, the uh, Jimmy Rogers era back in the uh, 30s. Yeah. You don't have the same culture today. And so people write songs about what they experience. They write books about what they experience. You write what you know, and so you're not going to have the same kind of song in 2022 as you had in 1932, or 42, or 52, or 62. It's constantly changing. To that, uh, Garrison Keeler, a, a great writer that we both admire, uh, wrote something about that just this morning, he said someone asked him to write the liner notes and endorsement for their new book. He read the book, and his words back to the author was, go get a life, then write a book. Yeah, go get a life, then write a book. Even if it's a novel, fiction. Or a country song. Yeah, you're writing something that uh, you've experienced or a friend has experienced, something you've observed in life. And I would like you to see it through my eyes as I saw it. And I think one of the greatest talents is to write a book in three minutes. And that's what some of the great writers have done, like Tom T. Hall. He writes a book in three minutes. Absolutely. Listen to Homecoming or A Week in a Country Jail or some of the other Tom T. Hall songs. Um, They're books. They're stories in two and a half minutes. I found a new one of his the other day called uh, uh, Mama Bake a Pie, Daddy Kill a Chicken. <laughs> yeah. Mama yeah. Bake a Pie, Daddy Kill yeah. a Chicken. It's a, But it has a, such a serious note. It's about a, a veteran coming home in a wheelchair. Remember, a salute to a switchblade. Oh, <laughs> What a story. So many great stories from the pen. Old dogs and children and watermelon wine. Yeah. Story of sitting at the uh, at the bar late at night, and the old gray man was cleaning up the lounge. Yeah, that women think about themselves when men folk ain't around. (laughs) (laughs) Tom T. Hall could write a book in two and a half or three minutes. Great lines, great lines in his songs. So can Hank Williams. 
go. And I'm, I'm watching a story on Paramount TV right now about the life of Hank Williams. And, uh, he was a rebel rouser. The Bellamy brothers got a song out right, right now, uh, that they wrote. And I've always admired their writing ability too, but in their song called, uh, there ain't no country music for old men. They use, there's a line in there where, uh, most of us don't remember when Hank played the Opry high as a kite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Hank did play the Opry high as a kite. And there is, uh, a, a little side story to Hank Williams' music that I didn't know until oh a few years ago when I read a um, a biography somebody wrote who was close to Hank Williams. You know, book uh, when you write a book, you have an editor, right? You right. have an editor. You must. And you write this book. Dave Hogan writes a book. He sends it to. Randy Houston, who is the editor, and the editor goes through that book with a fine-tooth comb, corrects grammatical errors, corrects punctuation, or comes back to you and says, Dave, if you wrote it this way, it would be more effective. And Hank Williams had Fred Rose as his song editor. Fred Rose was a great songwriter himself, uh, came to Nashville from uh, New York City, and he would take one of Hank Williams' songs and maybe change a word or two. He wouldn't change the meaning of the song, but he would uh, change a word or two in the song. Phraseology. Yeah, make it. Remember the song, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. What a masterpiece. A masterpiece. One of the great lines in that song is, the silence of a falling star lights up the purple sky. My word. Now, I cannot remember exactly how Hank wrote it, but Fred Rose came up with the purple sky. Poetry. Yeah. Just beautiful. And so this songwriting business has always fascinated me. Yes, it has me too, Dave. And it truly is a reflection of the time and the, and the current situation. You, you talk about shifts prior to the 50s and the birth of country music and rock and roll at the time. Uh, you know, prior to that, we went back to a time when uh, we were walking behind a mule uh, plowing crops by hand. And, uh, there was no machinery. There was no internet to tell us what the long range weather forecast was or anything like that. So we had a shift from that to what you're talking about in the fifties. And now, and we watch Andy Griffith, you know, you go back from the seventies with, uh, Columbo, we go back to the fifties when we watch Andy Griffith reruns. And and all of the shenanigans they pulled. It's Opie. Great. Ron Howard. Great book, by the way. You loaned me that book. Gina, my daughter, has it now. And Ron Howard turned into one of the great directors. And I just watched his latest movie about the rescue of those, uh, of those kids. In that coal, uh, in those underground mines, the 13 13- children were saved yeah that's in the name, or somewhere 
13 Lives, I believe, is the name of the uh, movie. Okay. I'm go- I've am i got it queued up to watch myself, too. Oh, it's fantastic. So Ron Howard the, production. Yeah, the way that they were, they were able to film this rescue, I think it was a, a natural cave. Yes. And uh, the these, tide came in and trapped them in it. Yeah, well, these kids had been playing soccer. And so somebody suggested, hey, we've got a little time here before dark. Let's explore this cave. And they got trapped because the monsoon range came a little early and they got trapped in there. And there was a big ledge that they had the room to stand on out of the harm's way. And it's the story of the rescue of those kids and their coach. And their coach, of course, felt like he was going to be blamed for this. And he refused to go out until all the kids were out safely. But we won't give it away. But there are things about that story that is brought out in the movie that uh, in the news report you didn't hear about. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing that. That book uh, by by Ron and his brother Clint, uh, I told another fellow Andy Griffith Show uh, fan like myself about that book, and I described it about there's some episodes of the Andy Griffith Show that will play out in your mind when you read this book, like getting extra episodes of the Andy Griffith Show. Ron talks up so much about growing up on the stage of the Andy Griffith show and what an influence Andy Griffith himself and uh, all of the other characters that we still enjoy watching were on him. The Andy Griffith show lives on. Uh, I forget how many episodes of the Andy Griffith show that have been played over and over. There's somebody put a number to it. How many times a particular show had been played uh, in in reruns yeah. it runs into the thousands and they're still on you can still find the Andy Griffith show I understand that uh, theater departments and major universities study the Andy Griffith show churches do really yeah I know some churches that have had uh, used particular episodes of the Andy Griffith show as uh, the text morality the plays yeah. morality plays uh, they've used them as a teaching tool. Andy said it himself. Uh, <clears throat> every one of those situations that we got into on the Andy Griffith show was done because we were trying to prevent someone from being embarrassed mm-hmm. or exposed or trying to protect somebody's feelings from getting hurt. Mm-hmm. That's why we went to all of those crazy links trying to keep Barney from being embarrassed. And, and that create that it was based on love. It really was a show based on love for your fellow human being. Well, it was a wonderful show. I, I, I can't turn it on, even though a particular episode I may have seen dozens of times. I want to see it again. If I, if I'm flipping through the channels and run across an Andy Griffith rerun, but you know, Andy Griffith, Grew up in Mount Airy, North Carolina. There weren't many black people who lived in Mount Airy, and you won't see many black people on the Andy Griffith show. And that has uh, been pointed out uh, by a number of people in a critical way. But we were talking about you write what you know about, 
And that's what Andy Griffith did with that show. I have a friend, and the, the church Margot and I attend hosted her as a speaker just a, a few weeks ago. Her name is Ann Miller Woodward. And Ann grew up where I did in Andrews, North Carolina. Okay. Where not many black people lived or live. Now, down in Cummings, Georgia, I forget the name of the county, but in Cummings, Georgia, north of Atlanta, back in, uh, I guess, the 1920s, somewhere in that time frame, there was a lynching of a black man in that county. And long story short, it turned out that all the black people, all the blacks were run out of that county, which, uh, as I said, Cummings, Georgia is the county seat. I, I, I don't remember, I apologize, don't remember the name of the county. But some of those people came to Western North Carolina. They came to Andrews and they found a welcome in Andrews, believe it or not. And they started their own community in a place called Happy Top. They named it. They called it Happy Forsyth County. I see you pulled it up. Forsyth County, Georgia. They came to Western North Carolina, including Ann's grandfather, Ann Miller's grandfather. They came to Western North Carolina and started their own little community called Happy Top. Wow. Which is right outside of Andrews, actually a part of the town. And Ann uh, grew up there, and they didn't have a high school for uh, black children. So she had to come to Asheville, and she attended Allen High School, Allen School, which was a Methodist sponsored school in Asheville. That's where she got her high school education because the school for black children in Andrews, they call them colored at the time, the colored school only went through the eighth grade. And Ann went on to get a college education. And she's written a book. And anybody who's interested in the culture of Western North Carolina should read. And if you'll pull up Ann Miller, I'll give you the title of the book, Ann Miller Woodward. And she wrote this book, and uh, she concentrates on the small counties of Western North Carolina, mainly. I think I said Woodward, it's Woodford, Ann Miller Woodford. And her father was Purell Miller. Her grandfather was Cleve Miller. They all grew up in Andrews, and she writes this book about uh, black culture in small towns and small counties of western North Carolina. And the name of the book is? I'm still looking. <laughs> Ann's Tree? Ann's Tree is her website. Okay. When all God's children gather around, I believe is the name of the book. When all God's children gather. Yes. When all God's children get together. Okay. When all God's children get together. Anne's become a very good friend of mine. And I visited her over in Andrews when I go back uh, to Hogan Holler for a visit. And she gives a program uh, about. Uh, blacks growing up in small towns and communities. 
And you know, unfortunately, and I hate to say this, there were sunset towns in western North Carolina, uh, towns and counties. And they were called sunset towns because in the days of the early days of Jim Crow, if you were black, they had signs up. They didn't use the black, they used the N-word. Get out of town before sundown. You're not allowed to be in town if you're black after sundown. And she writes about some of those. Unfortunately, Graham County, Robbinsville, and I believe Madison County may have been a sundown town. Exactly. And uh, there was uh, one colored school in Mars Hill and and uh, then, as you said, that school only went to, I think, only the sixth grade. It was one through six. Mm-hmm. And because students from that school were bused to Walnut School like we were with us, uh, the uh, Marshall students, those Mars Hill students came from Mars Hill down to Marshall. We all got on buses, rode out to Walnut in the morning and back in the afternoon, long bus trips. Long bus trips during a time of integration and those children from that school that were subjected to that bus ride. Mm. Yeah, it's still. Well, I look back uh, growing up in Andrews, a, a town in an area that I really love and always will. But I think of the kids in the black community not uh, being able to go beyond the elementary school. And there was a a high school, I believe, in Murphy that black kids could attend, but they had nobody to get from Andrews to Murphy. So what did they do? They just dropped out. There was no no way to further their education beyond um, beyond, – the eighth grade. Anyway, that's part of the culture of our area. It is absolutely a part of this culture. Uh, and I'm glad you told us about Anne Woodford. Uh, you can, uh, check out her website. You just Google Anne Woodford and you can get more information. You know, we talk about the integration of, of, uh, the culture. Charlie pride story Mm -hmm. is one of the most fascinating stories. And we've talked about it some here about how Chet Atkins was really the one at RCA records who was behind Charlie and behind introducing him to the, to the world of country music. Now common, common practice, you know, we have black artists. There's a new group called chapel heart. I don't know if you've been keeping up with them. I have on the uh, voices or American title or something. And that song that they have called, you could have him Jolene <laughs> and Dolly loves it. Yeah, you can have him Jolene. Remember Dolly's big hit was Jolene. Yes, yeah. of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Carolina chocolate drops. Oh. Are you familiar with the Carolina chocolate drops? I absolutely am and love the uh the historic value of their music and if you haven't heard their music and you couldn't have said this back in the 1970s like we were talking about earlier all you got to do is google it just google the carolina chocolate drops 
and uh, pull up some of their music. Absolutely. Um, yeah, this new song by uh, Chapel Heart, uh, Dolly tweeted. Dolly tweets. And uh, I, I've recently got a Twitter account, and uh, Dolly says she loves it. She mm-hmm. loves this new song by Chapel Heart. Uh, I, I'm trying to branch out a little bit and and include some of the newer artists in country music. But Dave, I have to tell you, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I have I I I still don't want to drift too far from the shore of the of the old fashioned good country that we grew up with and that you and I grew up with. Well, I think in uh, any society, you ought to keep the good parts and improve the bad parts. There you go. Either get rid of the bad parts or improve the bad parts. And I think that uh, we do a lot of that in our country. We Sometimes it's painful to go through change, but oftentimes it's for the good. Well, listen, I, I really appreciate you coming over and talking with us on these podcasts. Dave and I have been in radio for 100 years. I tell you what let's do on a future program, maybe next time we get together, because I've been having a little back and forth with one of my nephews about, he asked me, what's the greatest country song of all time in your opinion? And so we've been kind of going back and forth yeah. on that. Yeah. So maybe when we come back next time. We can do some of that. We'll talk about some of the, Love what it. we consider the greatest country songs of all time. Great idea. Come back and join us. And we'll do just that together on Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan. Be sure to click the subscribe button for another episode of Hot Mike with Randy Houston and Dave Hogan.